Well, good morning. It is a pleasure to be here with you this morning to worship with you. Thank you for the warm welcome and introduction from Danielle, and thank you for leading us. I didn't know that this week would be such a monumental week for the four nations of the United Kingdom. I obviously didn't know that our monarch would pass away. And so when at the start of the week, my wife asked me what I was preaching on, and I said mourning and comfort in mourning, I was really surprised by Thursday um, with what has happened this week. And I considered, is it right to preach on this? Um, But hopefully we'll find some help in what God says to us today through his word. So just making that disclaimer, this wasn't uh, something that I thought up on Thursday night or Friday when the queen passed away. But God has placed it on my heart, and so I want us to begin by reading a, a short passage from Isaiah chapter 61. And then we will turn to Matthew's gospel chapter 5. <clears throat> The first three verses of Isaiah chapter 61 reads, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he may be glorified. And the focus of of this morning will actually be Matthew chapter five, verse four. And I'll read from verse one. I'll give you a moment to turn there. This, of course, is Jesus' Beatitudes. But one in particular that we'll be looking at. Verse one of Matthew chapter five. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We'll end our reading there. And just to read verse four one more time, as it is our focus this morning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. My wife and I like to watch films together occasionally. Um, There hasn't been much recently that's been interesting to us, but when we do watch a film, our favorite genre to watch is a real-life true story. And often those real-life true stories um, are historical in nature, but quite often they are sad stories. Uh, But we like them because they're real, they've really happened. And 
Oftentimes, people who watch sad films cry. Now, I could say to you that I don't really cry when I'm watching films, very, very rarely, but that doesn't really tell you that the other person who does has a problem. In fact, it may point to a problem within me. It's a problem that I think many men have. And it's no secret, hopefully, that the female, the fairer sex, as it's often called, more commonly express emotion with tears. But that is a quality that we can learn from rather than mock. And so I ask you this morning, have we forgotten how to mourn? Do we think that tears are a sign of weakness when often there's a greater strength of character in someone who knows how to express an inward emotion outwardly? Erwin Lutzer's book, One Minute After You Die, wisely states, some Christians have mistakenly thought that grief demonstrates a lack of faith. Thus, they have felt it necessary to maintain strength rather than deal honestly with a painful loss. Grief that deals honestly with the pain is a part of the healing process. And lament or mourning is a form of praise to God. It's a gift from God to lament. In fact, it's a command of God that we should lament properly. Our English dictionaries define it as a way to express passionate grief about something. Now, the mourning that Jesus was commending to his disciples here is more than mourning over the loss of a loved one. Though that's where I want us to start as we focus on this beatitude and as we seek to apply it to ourselves. And we'll do so in two main ways. As disciples of Christ, we have great hope in this world because we know the fact that this world is not our home and it's not our final destination. Sometimes, particularly maybe over the last couple of years, We've been taught to think that our goal in life is to simply stay alive on earth as long as possible at the expense of more important things. But our goal in life is to give God the glory in the moments, in the days, in every minute that he gives us breath. And when that breath stops, our goal in life is to glorify him eternally and to share in that glory with our Lord. But on earth, we live in service to him. We live in submission to Jesus Christ as Lord. And in pursuing that goal, we don't cling on too dearly to our physical existence because we have a far greater hope in the future. Paul said, whatever light momentary affliction we suffer here on earth, he's honest, we will suffer those momentary afflictions, but whatever they are, he says, they're preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things which are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. This is a groaning that the whole creation shares, Paul will tell us in another place. And it's because of the curse of our sin. We mourn because of our sin, either the, the human sinfulness 
or the effect of that sin on creation, which leads to death and disaster and wars and all kinds of terrible things. That's why this beatitude is primarily about, excuse me, is primarily about mourning over sin. But it's also about mourning over the consequences of sin, the things that we see in our daily lives when we walk through this troubled earth. But this beatitude is not without hope. In fact, it is full of hope. But the first thing we need to do is look at the mourning. So let's just use the words of the Beatitude as our headings. And firstly, we'll look at mourning. Blessed are those who mourn. Fascinating. What could this possibly mean? And I'm sure the disciples were thinking the same thing. I was speaking to a student at the college, a friend of mine, and I said that I was going to be preaching on mourning, and I was going to be using this text. And he said, do you think Jesus was really talking about mourning over the loss of a loved one, bereavement, or was he talking about mourning over sin? It's a very good question. I think the context of the passage and and Matthew's emphasis, it's quite clear that Jesus was concerned primarily with the right response to our own sin, mourning in that instance. But I do think it's crucial that we can apply what Jesus taught to mourning and sadness more widely. Luke chapter 6 verse 21 has a different wording of this beatitude where Jesus said, blessed are you who weep now for you will laugh And as disciples of Christ, if you're following Christ, you know that you'll have many reasons to weep in life. And so firstly, I want us to think about mourning over sin's effects. Naturally, the first thing that you think of when you hear that word mourning is death. When someone close to you dies, you enter a period of mourning. You spend time in sorrow, remembering their life, and you need time to process that they're gone. And I want to say up front, this is not a wrong response. It's not wrong to be sad for the right reasons. So does the Bible have any examples of people mourning that, that show us it's, a, it's okay to do and it's, there's a correct way to do it that honors God? And we say, yes, there are many examples. Take the Psalms in the Old Testament. In the Psalms, we have poetry that is full of the psalmist expressing the deepest sadness of his heart. We call those psalms laments. And in his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Mark Vrogup writes, every human being has the same opening story. Life begins with tears. It's simply a part of what it means to be human. To cry is human, but lament is different. The practice of lament is not as natural to us as crying, because every lament should be a prayer. It's a statement of faith. Lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart that is wrestling with the paradox of God's goodness, but also the pain that we feel in life. And that paradox is addressed honestly by the psalmist, no more clearly than in Psalm 13, which begins, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? But that psalm ends with these words, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Jesus wept, perhaps the shortest but the most impactful verse in the New Testament, expresses Jesus' response to a loved one passing away. 
It reveals so much about Jesus and his human nature, and it, it wasn't taken away from the gospel by the writer of the gospel to save Jesus some embarrassment, because it's not embarrassing to cry over the loss of a loved one, and it's not wrong. God has given us these responses to terrible circumstances. Those responses are a blessing, because without mourning properly, we would simply ball everything up in our hearts and be at risk of exploding with emotion. That's why you'll hear counselors invite their patients to sit on the couch and express themselves fully, open their hearts and pour out the pain before they can work through that pain. But we need to express what we're feeling deep down before we can move on and receive comfort. So in many ways, this is like an illustration of Jesus' main point about expressing what's wrong before you receive comfort. One reason why the entertainment industry is one of the most profitable and continues to increase in its profits is because it provides us with distractions from the real life issues that we face. For example, if you're watching a film for two hours, you can avoid thinking about the things going on in your life for two hours. But after those two hours, you need something else. We need something to take our minds off difficult issues. Now this, this is kind of talking only about mourning over the effects of sin in the world, the brokenness, the fallenness of creation. But as I said, I think Jesus is referring to mourning over sin. This mourning is primarily about a proper response to sin. And in the Greek language, they had nine different words for grief. Jesus uses the strongest of them. And the fact that the Greeks had nine different words for grief demonstrates to us that it was a common aspect of their lives, just as it is of ours. So how amazing then that Jesus tells the disciples that there is comfort they can receive in times of grief. And the kind of grief here is the most severe because it's sorrow over personal sin. 2 Corinthians 7, 5 says, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. With godly grief comes an acceptance that you are completely helpless to deal with your sin. You know that there's absolutely nothing that you can do to make yourself right before God, and there's nothing that you can do to remove your sin. But the comfort that's available is from the source of all comfort, the only one who is called Savior, Jesus Christ. And with Christ, we can have lasting joy. Now, a couple of examples from the Old Testament and the New Testament, hopefully, will clarify what I'm trying to say. Ezra in Ezra chapter 10, he prayed a prayer of confession in the midst of uh, all the people in the house of God. And Ezra 10 verse 1 tells us that he did it whilst weeping and casting himself down before the house of God. And the other people who were there confessing their sins joined him in, in crying, streams of tears. This is like what the psalmist talks about. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. They're talking about a, a palpable heartache in response to people's willful, blatant disregard for God's law. 
And if we look at the New Testament and take Paul as an example, we can see at least three ways that he mourned over sin. The way that Jesus uh, told us that we should mourn. First, he mourns over the continual sins of those who reject Christ, Christ and refuse to repent. Paul literally cried when he thought about the many people in that group who live as enemies of Christ. He says to the Philippian church, for as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Secondly, he mourned over his own indwelling sin. In Romans 7, he describes a a daily battle that the Christian faces, uh, struggling against sin and temptation. And in verse 24, he cries out, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? So he, he mourns in a way over the masses of lost souls. He mourns over his own indwelling sin. And thirdly, Paul also mourned over the people that were entrusted to his care. The iniquity of Christians, which is, was especially distressing to him and no doubt to God. He says to the Corinthians, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning elsewhere to the Corinthians? I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over those who sinned earlier and have not repented. You see, when we don't mourn over our sin, when we are okay with it, when we do nothing about our sin and we keep silent and we don't ask God for forgiveness, our bones waste away. That's what the psalmist said. Our bones waste away. In other words, if we live with our sin and we don't confess it and we are quite happy about it, in fact, we will be miserable. This is the the misery of living with a guilty conscience and stubbornly refusing to admit that you need God's forgiveness. Why would a follower of Christ ever feel such grief over wrongdoing? Because we know how much it cost our Savior to pay for our sins. Some people in the first few centuries after Christ died and and then went to heaven after his resurrection, some people thought that if he had already paid for their sin, then there was nothing stopping them from continuing to lead a life of sin. This is how Paul responded. What shall we say then? Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Basically, these people were saying, If God gives us grace when he forgives our sin, then maybe the more we sin, the more grace we get. This was their twisted logic, their heresy. It was a ridiculous claim that cheapened grace. In fact, it turned grace into something completely different. And it's what we do when we fail to recognize how how valuable God's grace is. That's why we must continue to mourn over our sin. And I'm not saying that once God has forgiven us, that we start thinking and dwelling upon past sins. No, certainly not. Because there we have mourned over the sin, as Jesus commands us to. And God has forgiven us, and we receive the comfort. And that's the part that I want us to focus on. Because there is comfort available to us in this passage. But the other thing that Paul was doing was he was mourning over the sins of others. And this is, I think, what Jesus did as he came into Jerusalem in Matthew 23. It says this, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, 
Even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. So I wonder, do we respond to the sin in our own city like this? Do we have compassion? Someone said most of us prefer merely to condemn. We are prepared to walk with Jesus through Matthew 23 in Jerusalem and repeat his pronouncements of doom, but we stop before we get to the end of that chapter and join him in weeping over the city. But that's something that Jesus calls us to do. Not to just focus on our own sin, though we should, but also to be grieved at at the way our society's going, the way that our world is going, and how few are coming to Christ. We are to be mourners, but that's not the end of the story, and it's certainly not the end of this parable, because this parable is full of joy. I should say this beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And we need to understand how mourning can be considered a blessing. Now, we shouldn't understand that word blessing as the same word that we use as happy. Sometimes we think of happiness as an emotional response to something that makes us feel good. For example, the American football season starts tonight, and if my team score a touchdown, I might be happy, but more often than not, they don't score, so that happiness quickly changes to frustration. That's not blessing. That's not true Christian spiritual joy. That's just an emotional response to something that I have very little say over. Instead, Jesus is saying those who mourn will receive a spiritual blessing, a spiritual joy. The traditional Welsh rendering of this verse, and I don't claim to be able to speak or pronounce it, is Gwynibud, and that just means white is their world. It's a, it's a phrase that Welsh people use to mean everything is well with them. It's not saying that everything in life, every detail of someone's life as a Christian is good and happy all the time, but they have an inner sense of well-being because they have the spirit within them. So Jesus isn't saying that you're always gonna have a happy feeling in this life, but he is saying that you will always be in a blessed situation with God. If he has forgiven your sins, if he has given you his spirit, if he has saved you once, and for all. The reason why those who mourn are blessed is because they will be comforted. No maybes, no ifs, they will be comforted, Christ said. In fact, as soon as we mourn properly over our sin and and ask God to forgive us, we receive that comfort. God sees that genuine mourning over our sin and he consoles us with his abundant forgiveness. This word comfort It comes from the same word that Jesus used as a identifier for the Holy Spirit, the comforter, literally the one who draws alongside. It's like the the older English word abide that we were singing. It's what the Holy Spirit, it's who he is, it's what he does. He draws alongside us, he gives us comfort. He reminds us every time that we do fall and we come back asking for forgiveness, repenting of our sin, He comforts us and he reminds us our sin has been dealt with already on the cross. You don't need to dwell in it. You can receive comfort. Christians know that we will face a battle with indwelling sin. That battle will rage on until Christ returns to put all of his enemies under his feet. 
And we should be concerned if, if we're indifferent towards sin, and if we are not putting up any kind of a fight against temptation. That could concern us, but I want to tread carefully here. I'm not condemning anyone who's struggling hard to overcome some weakness that they have in a particular area, but I also don't want us to think that Christian sin is a light matter to God. So I'll simply say this. Remember that with every temptation you face, God provides a way out. Remember that your sins are forgiven if you're a follower of Christ. And reflect on what it cost Christ to pay for your sins on the cross. Those three things will help us in our battle. But if you don't know forgiveness, then you don't know peace with God, and you don't know this comfort that I'm talking about. You may have experienced comfort at times in your life, but do you have this ongoing, indwelling presence of the Spirit that is comfort to you through all walks of life? You need to confess your own sin and your inability to change. The Bible, God's Word, is not a self-help book. It doesn't give you a list of things to do to change yourself. No, it points you to someone infinitely greater than yourself who can change you from the inside out because it shows us the one and only Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God's own son who gave his own life for the sake of those who hated and despised us. The very ones who he came to rescue tortured him and crucified him on a crossbeam of wood with pain that we can't even begin to understand. This Jesus is the one who knows the seriousness of our sin. He knows that we're powerless to deal with it, but he also gives us comfort because he is the only one who is able to deal with our sin once and for all. The first beatitude says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that's because the poor in spirit recognize their need for forgiveness. That's the first step towards forgiveness because you can't accept the solution to a problem that you won't admit that you have. The doctor will not give you any medication if you won't tell him what's wrong with you. Thomas Watson said, mourning precedes comfort as the lancing of a wound precedes the cure. I want to be clear. Mourning over sin and mourning over its consequences are two very different things. As a child, if you apologize to your parents for stealing something from them, were you sorry that you broke the fifth and eighth commandment, or were you sorry that you were about to be punished for being found out? The Bible tells us that when Judas, who betrayed Jesus, realized just what he had done, he felt guilty, gave back the money, and then he hanged himself. And that might seem to be mourning over sin, but in actuality, he regretted what he had done and that he'd been found out, and he was afraid of what would happen to him. He mourned because of the consequences of his sin, and he couldn't face it, so he added to his sin instead of seeking forgiveness. But Jesus is promising joy and comfort in Matthew 5 verse 4 for those who truly repent of their sin and ask him for forgiveness, who mourn over their sin. They know that they're wrong and that only Christ can save them, and so they find comfort in him. 
like the psalmist who said, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. That's the blessing that Jesus was talking about. And the comfort that you receive if you follow Christ, that joy is amazing. It can't be bought or achieved. You cannot get it any other way other than beginning to realize firstly that you need it. That you realize how helpless you are to fix your own brokenness and how much Christ has done to fix that brokenness. When we accept his forgiveness, we know comfort forever. One day we will go to be with him in heaven where there will be no sin and therefore there will be no mourning. There will be no tears because there will be no grief. There will be no death and there will be no pain. That's the ultimate comfort that this beatitude points to. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Jesus is reminding us that God knows our tears. He knows our struggles. He knows our pain. But he also knows that all of those things are caused by sin, ultimately. Because in a broken world, these things will continue. Because sin has destroyed the perfection of everything God created in Genesis. And it's even spoiled the good things that we try to do for God. But we're not in a hopeless situation. The everlasting comfort that Jesus speaks of is available to you and I in Christ because God has always had a plan to restore what sin broke. Shortly before beginning his ministry, Jesus walked into his local place of worship in his hometown. He picked up a scroll with the text of Isaiah on it, and he read this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom from the, for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free. And as I was reading that in Isaiah 61, you may have noticed that that's where Jesus finished his reading, halfway through uh, verse two. But at the end of that verse, it also says, to comfort all who mourn. And there's a future fulfillment of Isaiah 61 that we wait for as we cry, come Lord Jesus. We're asking him to come back so that we may know that everlasting joy and comfort. Jesus knew what God had sent him to do that day. He came to comfort all who mourn by taking away the cause of their suffering, their sin. And as he hanged on the cross, dying in the most horrific way imaginable, he cried out, it is finished. Because the power of sin and death and hell was removed, was destroyed, and comfort was made available to all who repent and trust in him. That comfort is available to you now. Today is the day of salvation. And those who do know it as a present reality, as an ongoing comfort, we continue to look forward to that day when Christ will return and he will take us to be with him in an everlasting kingdom. Until that day, we will have reason to mourn and lament, but we do so in a prayer of faith, trusting that God is with us, that we do have a great high priest who sympathizes with us in our weakness, and as Revelation says, will return as the lamb in the midst of the throne who will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear 
from their eyes. So blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Amen. We're going to sing Behold the Lamb before we uh, come to the table of remembrance and give thanks again for how that comfort was made possible through the death of Christ.